Hey there, Margie Bryce here bringing you the Krabby Pastor Podcast. And I don't think you're going to be too surprised to know that it's too easy today to become the Krabby Pastor. Our time together will give you food for thought to help you be the ministry leader fully surrendered to God's purposes and living into whatever it takes to get you there and keep you there. So we're talking about sustainability in ministry. We are at canonic lesson number three, and I think there's going to be a bit of a series of podcast lessons here about kenosis, the canonic way, canonic lifestyle, canonic leadership, any and all of that, how does this tie into the Krabby Pastor? Well, I am glad you asked. I know I talk a lot about self-care, and one aspect of self-care is indeed spiritual. So when I talk about canonic leadership, I'm talking about a spiritual leadership. And for the sake of this lesson, we're going to explore what it means to be a servant of Jesus because, and here's here's more self-care tie-in, because of Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And who doesn't want some of that? I know. I That sounds good to me, too, let me tell you. But one caveat before I really get rolling here, and, and I don't think I've said this here before, um, self-care is not a denominational issue. Self-care is a spiritual issue, a deeply spiritual issue. So please share this podcast with your ministry leadership friends, you know, regardless of denomination, regardless of whether they're ordained, because I view a ministry leader as anyone to whom God has given spiritual responsibility over another or others in some cases, or even you might want to share it even with those who you think God might be calling into ministry leadership, or potentially someone that you are hoping to draw into leadership. So today I want to talk a bit about Paul, the extraordinary church planter guy, Um, And in this case, we're going to talk about the book of Philippians. So Paul is writing from jail to his beloved church plant in Philippi. So, you know, this is not like today where we fire off an email or a text. He's in jail. He can't run to Walmart for those lovely yellow legal pads that we all love so much. Well, some of us, Um, an envelope, a stamp. Anyway, he can't do any of that. So from that, though, we know that if Paul is taking the time to write, especially from jail, that he wants to deliver this message, and the message bore some weight on his heart. So we're going to dig in at that. At that moment, though, with Paul in jail, in chains, he certainly is lacking a bit of personal status here. And this is Paul, who was a Roman citizen and that carried some status in the culture. And at one point, he was a high-ranking Jewish leader. Again, 
status, rank, power, all of that, you know, they got the best place, places at the potlucks, you know. But the culture would now look at his status quite differently, right? You know, so he decides he's going to write this letter and he's tooling along through, oh, here he says, I've got chapter one done. Well, he didn't say that because, you know, the numbers and the chapters and everything came later. But anyway, he's written an introduction and he's through chapter one and then he gets through to chapter two and he starts there. And then all of a sudden, this song, this chorus appears and the Spirit of God says, put that there. So he does that. And it's one of those songs or choruses, however you want to say that, that tells the gospel all together, you know, like in Christ alone. I realize that's probably a dated chorus kind of song, but that song details how Christ set aside station, rank, and power to be filled with the purposes of God in the same way that a servant, which is the Greek word doulos, and I may have mispronounced that, but we're moving along anyway. In the same way, a servant is loyal and obedient to their master in all ways. So one question you might want to ask is, besides the Spirit of God, what prompted Paul to go, I know, let's put this chorus here in this letter. And we'll get some glimmers from what Paul is saying earlier in the letter for that. Because in chapter one, he mentions a few little dynamics going on. First off, he mentions other people preaching Christ. And actually, in some cases, their goal was to increase Paul's punishment. Lovely. Some commentaries say this was not only to increase Paul's punishment, but that they were actual rivals who were envious and who sought their own kind of advancement as a gospel teller. They want to be on top, right? Verse 17, the rivals preach Christ out of selfish ambition, a climbing over others so that you can be the one at the top, which sounds a lot like competition to me. And the reason we can easily identify competition is that it is just absolutely replete in our culture today. It's it's part of our DNA in some levels. So anyway, Paul goes on and he like offers these rivals some grace in his letter. Pretty amazing. However, this seemingly momentary embrace of insincere motives for preaching Christ, you know, is actually mentioned in the letter to instruct the believers at Philippi. I mean, why mention it? Why bring it up? Paul, though, is urging them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 27, chapter 1. And now, rolling into chapter 2, he asks the believers at Philippi to make his joy complete. Have a unity that does not encompass people climbing over one another for rank, station, or power. So yeah, don't do that. Value others above yourself. So obviously, Paul had gotten some kind of word that there was stuff going down at Philippi, something of a partisan nature, causing people, you know, to take sides. And it was between two congregants, you know, who knew that that happened like ever. But certainly today, we know about 
partisan issues, do we not? You know, anybody who had to deal with masks or politics or or even a power grab. And yes, those happen even within faith communities. Oh, my. Hey, Margie Bryce here, and I have something free for you. If you are unsure of what your mindset is when it comes to self-care, if you know you should do self-care, but you're just not sure how to get that rolling, how to get started, I have a free ebook for you, and it is about radical self-care, and it will get you started thinking about it and has lots of helpful information. Actually, what it is more than anything else is a journal style kind of piece that will help you work through the process of self-evaluation so you get a sense of where you are with self-care. So to get this free ebook, I'm gonna put a link in the show notes. And you can access it from there, and it can help you get started on the self-care that you know you should be doing anyway, and get you started maybe on taking some definitive action to ensure that you have the sustainability necessary to go the distance with God. So Paul calls the believers at Philippi to unity. He says, have the same love, be one in spirit and purpose. And then comes the second time that Paul mentions hmm, selfish ambition, verses two and three. And here Paul contrasts two modes of being that inform kenosis, actually. One is a call to walk in humility in kenosis, and see others as more important than you. And the other is selfish ambition, a partisan way where someone puts themselves first, and he's contrasting them. So here we have it. There are indeed those who promote self and have selfish ambition within their own service of the gospel. That's chapter one. And then from within a faith community. Imagine that. And I'm using a bit of Pauline. I don't know if it's sarcasm, but where he asks those little pointed questions that make those kind of remarks, like it's somebody in the back of the room hollering something out. Anyway, Paul instructs those in Philippi to not act in a way that promotes yourself above other people. Imagine that. I mean, we're going back to the selfish ambition term in Philippians 1.17 and Philippians 2.3, if you're into the Greek, and I'm going to mispronounce this one for sure, erythria. Anyway, it's a Greek word that's tied to like electioneering and campaigning and political aspiration, which we know anytime there's politics mentioned, it has to do with power and the power grab. This is kind of a divisive word, meaning you distinguish and promote yourself above someone else. You're competing to stand out in a crowd. You want to gain some status and power and the polar opposite of Jesus who set aside status, rank, 
and power, which no doubt is why what triggered Paul to include that little chorus in there. So what I'm going to say here today is that competition stands in direct opposition to humility and the canonic lifestyle, which I'm saying operating in the canonic lifestyle and with kenosis front and center is spiritual self-care. And the challenge here is that competition is part of our culture in a really, really, really big way. So a few years ago, when I started researching kenosis, I interviewed a retired bishop. He's now retired, Bishop Shinezi, and he emphasized how the American culture presses in and attempts to be the shaping tool of all of us in this American culture. And and here's his warning to us. If we're not careful, we cultivate a learned discontent, an unachievable appetite as our state of being. And I am not going to be happy unless I have 20% more in attendance, which he terms as a corporate competitiveness. This approach derails the journey on the canonic path. So you don't want to have this learned discontent, this chronic, unachievable appetite, kind of as who you are guiding you. That's not what we are going for in kenosis. Now, again, the Philippians are warned against the delusion that anyone in this life can consider themselves perfect. This is one for the perfectionists listening. That's probably myself included. So don't delude yourself that you can be perfect anyway. Whatever you accomplish, there is always a further goal which you must strive. It's a never-ending sense of shortcoming that rightly belongs to the best essence of the Christian life. And this never-ending sense of shortcoming is one thing that keeps us going back to God, going back to Jesus and soliciting for help or going to others. It keeps us, it keeps us humble, actually. So you don't want to delude yourself into thinking you can be perfect or that you're ever going to achieve this goal because the goal of the Christian life is to continue to be more and more like Jesus. And that is a never-ending sense of, I have shortcomings in that department. And, and that really does help draw us closer to God. And let's add this dimension in, discipleship, where you would, in that day, place, and time of Paul, Jesus, you would choose a master and study under them, And here the goal is to be so closely aligned with your master that you might actually, you know, one day be mistaken for the master. Imagine that dimension of discipleship here that you spend so much time and you're so close to Jesus that people see Jesus in you. Hmm. For us, this is a call to identify with and act in a canonic way where rights and privileges are not the driving force of our lives. We need to be sure we are identified with God's purposes. And we need to be identified with God's purposes for us. 
So here's what this might look like, okay? Let's say you have a smaller congregation and there's a mega church in town. You think, hey, I can't compete with that. And you are exactly right. Nor should you. I mean, let's be honest. Who doesn't want to be all that in a bag of chips, right? Although when a mega has bowling alleys and big indoor playscapes, you know, it's easy to also think, I can't keep up with that. And standing there mulling over their fortune, well, you know what? It can be life-draining and a tad ego-deflating, which can lead to discouragement, meaning you lose the courage to innovate, and you don't want to do that. Uh, you You know what? They are doing their thing, and you are doing yours. By the way, and this is your reminder, competition is the opposite of humility. And I'm not saying it's not hard to stand in the shadow of other people's successes. So here's what a ministry leader has to do with that. You have to be faithful and obedient with where you are and encourage and equip your people to do their ministry. As a ministry leader, that is your role. Stay in your lane. Use the assets you have. If you aren't sure what assets you have, you know, you need to take some time and, as they say, count your many blessings and start writing out the assets that you have and and make a list of the giftedness of your either colleagues in ministry or the people over which you have influence and responsibility for in a spiritual sense and the other all the other assets you have and ask God how you can bless other people with these blessings that you have you're just responsible to use what you have what God has given you not worrying about what else is going on when i was a leader at uh down river uh church there <laughs> there was a mega right around the corner with bowling alleys and you know indoor playscapes and come have your birthday parties here everybody and they they let the community in to use that and you're kind of like oh boy so so i get it i get it but at the end of the day you're only responsible to use what you have been given aspiring to be someone else is a form of covetousness and you don't want to head down there it just that will make you crabby <laughs> that will make you crabby i'm working with a church right now to help them discover the needs uh, in their community and assess how well those needs are being met by other nonprofits including churches and to prayerfully find their own niche you know get your group up and serving god has a purpose for your group regardless of size, regardless of how many megachurches are in your neighborhood. And for the record, when I was at Down River, there were three, three multi-campus megas. So I, I get it, totally. But all you have to do is be who God created you to be. I mean, and that goes for individuals and for groups. You want to honor God by using what God has given you and saying that that is enough to be Jesus to others. So after doing maybe a little research, so, you know, to say, 
Lord, I don't have it all sewed up and all the ideas that I have are not sufficient. Maybe you're going to do a little research and a little process to discover what the needs are in your community and then lead your group with their giftedness. God will be faithful in a process like that where you're saying, Lord, where and how, what can we do to serve you with what we have? God will be very faithful to help you discover how you can be a blessing to others. And at the same time, as a ministry leader, you'll be helping your people step out to be Jesus to others in their own ways. So don't give in to competitiveness. Be very aware of what's going on in your heart and in your mind. Don't be competitive with your colleagues or with other churches but live into the canonic way of life and be on the life-giving path where the burden is easy and light. Blessings on you this day, my friends. Hey, thanks for listening. It is my deep desire and passion to champion issues of sustainability in ministry and for your life. So I'm here to help. I stepped back from pastoral ministry and I feel called to help ministry leaders uh, create and cultivate sustainability in their lives so that they can go the distance with God and whatever plans that God has for you. I would love to help. I would consider it an honor. And in all things, Make sure you connect to these sustainability practices, you know, so that you don't become the crabby pastor. <laughs>